Welcome back to another episode of the CSK8 podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. Each week alternates between an interview with a guest or multiple guests and a solo episode where I unpack some scholarship. This week's particular episode is going to unpack a paper by Thomas Rogelski, and the paper is titled On Methodolatry and Music Teaching as Critical and Reflective Praxis. Now, in this episode, I'm actually going to modify it in relation to computer science education, because that's kind of the point of this podcast. But I will say that this is actually something I brought up in multiple interviews already, including the interview that released last week with GT Robel. Since I've mentioned it in passing multiple times, I figured I should probably do an unpacking scholarship episode to actually dive into this a little bit more. As always, you can find a link to the actual article in the show notes, which you can find in the description of the app that you're listening to this on, or by visiting jaredoleary.com where there's nothing for sale, no advertisements, nothing like that. When you go to the show notes for this, you can click on the title of this paper and it'll take you directly to a link to this where you can obtain it, or you can click on the author's last name and it'll take you to their Google Scholar profile in case you want to read more by this particular author. Now, this particular paper does not have an abstract. However, if I were to give a one sentence summary, I would say that this paper problematizes the lack of philosophy, theory, and professional praxis in music education. However, in this episode, I'm going to discuss the parallels or a blind faith in methods discussed in computer science education. So this paper begins with Rigelski describing how sociologists consider teaching to be a semi-profession and suggests that one part of the problem is that teaching can lack underlying theory and accepted practice-based knowledge that originates from that theory. So here's a quote from page 102. Quote, the theory serving as the basis of any profession is not a matter of simple speculation. It is rooted in research and theoretical principles, fundamentals that importantly include commonly recognized and accepted action ideals of the profession's ethical and other guiding philosophical considerations, end quote. A little further into that particular paragraph, Rogelski says, quote, as a result, there are no standard results for any practitioner or for the overall profession. Furthermore, there are no standard methods just standards of care rooted in the profession's theoretical and ethical premises, end quote. Again, also from page 102. Okay, so why does this matter? So here's a quote from page 102 that kind of addresses this. Quote, without professionally based consensus on ends, no stable criteria exists for selecting means and evaluating results, and thus no ethic of accountability can apply. As a consequence, results are considerably unpredictable and not infrequently negative, and the appropriateness and usefulness of much what is taught and learned is regularly disputed, end quote. So Rogelski mentions that, that this isn't a knock on individual teachers, but is a critique of the overall structural weakness in the field of music education, which I would argue is a parallel weakness that I've been observing over the past several years working in computer science education. So in particular, Rogelski mentions that success as a field remains vague because we lack consensus on the direction as a field. Hence the Unpacking Scholarship episode by Resnick and Rusk, where I talk about the Coding at a Crossroads article, as well as the couple of episodes on the CS4ALS Visions framework that I'll talk about a little bit more later on in this episode. Okay, so this intro is basically saying like, hey, as a field, we don't really have any philosophies, theories, or practices that kind of guide us, and we're not necessarily treated as professionals because of a lack of those theories and philosophies. In praxis. Okay, so the next section of the paper titled Philosophy, Theory, and Professional Praxis. So in this section, Rogelski suggests that we can become more professionalized by engaging in, quote, critical reflection and progressive consensus on what social, political, and economic ends should be rightfully served by schools and thus by teachers, end quote, from page 103. 
So for example, we might use a CS Visions framework to determine the vision for a particular program. Now, if you haven't listened to that episode, it was a while ago, uh, episode 20 was an unpacking scholarship episode that's a discussion on this particular framework. And that particular episode is titled, CS for what? Diverse Visions of Computer Science Education in Practice. And then the episode that is immediately after that, episode 21, is an interview with two of the three authors for this particular framework. And that particular episode is titled, The CS Visions Framework in Equity-Centered Computing Education with Rafi Santo and Sarah Vogel. So I highly recommend checking out those two episodes. I will be referring to them frequently, and I will link to them in the show notes, just to make it easy. Okay, so Rogelski suggests that teachers should engage in more philosophical study on the philosophies and theories of education, as they can inform not only how to teach or facilitate, but the rationales behind using one approach over another. In addition, Rogelski suggests that if we are not overtly exploring the philosophical underpinnings of our own practice, we will implicitly and uncritically engage in what Rogelski refers as a weak philosophy. So in other words, we will unknowingly model philosophies of education without understanding the rationales and research that supports or criticizes such approaches. So to be extremely explicit with this, computer science educators might be engaging in constructionist practices or constructivist theories or approaches without even knowing what constructionism or constructivism is. These are just two of the many different theories or philosophies that can guide computer science education. Now this becomes problematic when we don't know why these theories are important or when they are intended to be used. So to combat this, Rogelski poses a strong sense of philosophy. Here's a quote from page 104 that kind of elaborates on this. Quote, Philosophy in the strong sense, in contrast, requires familiarity with the discipline of philosophy, that body of knowledge and literature resulting from the critical, logical, and reasoned examination of fundamental philosophical issues over history. It requires, further, a properly philosophical application of this knowledge in the service of a critical or analytical attitude towards current issues, particularly in the kinds of unexamined beliefs and uncritical opinions that constitute the weak sense of philosophy. In the absence of such a critical attitude, many of the most cherished beliefs and convictions of computer science educators go unchallenged and not philosophically clarified, despite the fact that so many issues facing computer science teachers are much more complex, richly textured, and multifaceted than their common sense or weak philosophy can accommodate." End quote. Now, in this quote and in the quotes that I'm going to read later on in the episode, I change music teachers or music educators to computer science teachers or computer science educators. So just as an FYI, slight modification, otherwise all the other words are the same. So in addition to engaging in a strong philosophy, Rogelski suggests that educators should engage in praxis, which is the, quote, practical knowledge for helping people, end quote, that involves phronesis, which is, quote, the need to observe standards of care, end quote. Those are both from page 104. Okay, so a quick summary of this particular section in the paper. Rogelski is basically saying that we, as a profession, need to engage in philosophy more and think more critically about the kind of philosophies that we are explicitly or implicitly using in our classroom, which is something that I've mentioned in previous interviews. Whether you want to or not, you are engaging in some kind of learning theories or philosophies, and it is much better to be explicit about them and understand them so that way you know why and when to use particular philosophies over others. Okay, so the next section of this paper is titled Training in Music Teaching as a Technology or Craft. So in this section of the paper, Rogelski argues that 
Colleges of education tend to focus on training teachers as if they were engaging with a technology or a craft. So in other words, learning what to teach and how to teach, but providing less focus on why or when. So for example, limited discussion on curriculum theory or sociological and philosophical underpinnings of different approaches, but instead just demonstrating how to teach a lesson or how to use a platform or tool in the classroom. Quote, as a result, most new teachers being taught no alternatives blindly accept and adopt the particular method at stake. End quote, from page 105. Quote, in consequence, various tacit, informal, unvalidated theories and assumptions held to be practical led to a technicism of teaching. Teaching is a kind of assembly line technology that very often falls short of being pragmatic. The primary concern of such teacher trainings is with practicing and mastering the techniques, that is, techni, associated with one or more methods as technologies, which I call technicist methods, thus with virtually no understanding, quote, education, concerning the ethical basis provided by philosophical and curriculum, most new computer science teachers begin to practice the bag of tricks and other various techniques and strategies imparted by their computer science education professors, cooperating teachers, and early on-the-job mentors. One aspect of such technicist methods is that they are typically presented as teacher-proof and as transferable from one school situation and teacher to another. These technicist assumptions are erroneous and are widely seen as responsible for the disempowering, deprofessionalizing, and de-skilling of computer science teachers." End quote. From page 105. So, in other words, to summarize that long quote, we learn the tools of teaching without critically reflecting on the purposes and philosophies behind those tools, and therefore the research on the why is often viewed as irrelevant for teachers looking for the how or what to teach. So a quick summary of this particular section in the paper is basically saying that Rogelsky argues that we focus too much on the what and the how and not enough on the why of teaching and learning. Okay, so the next section of the paper is titled Relevance of the Research Base. So Rogelsky notes that graduate programs tend to fall into two different categories, one that continues the how-to approach, and another that prepares students for doctoral studies in order to engage in research. Even within these programs that focus on doctoral studies, there is a tendency to focus on the how for doing research rather than the critical reflections on the why of different research approaches. To further complicate things, there is also often a focus on knowledge for knowledge's sake without practical application or use. So Rogelsky suggests that engaging in applied research might help. However, because educational research can't definitively and objectively come to a conclusion on a topic in all use cases, the underlying mantra that more research is needed can make applied research appear as impractical for teachers. So in other words, the point of this particular section is saying like, hey, graduate programs tend to focus on two different things. And within those categories, the people who are engaging in research are often doing it in a way that is not practical or useful. And when they are, because this research is being applied in learning environments where it's not necessarily applicable outside of those learning environments, teachers might look at the research and go, okay, yeah, that's great for the kids that you worked with, but how would that work for the kids that I work with? Which is a very valid argument to think through and critically analyze and reflect on. So the next section of the paper, which is titled Towards Critical Teaching Praxis, it's basically a very quick overview of changes in philosophy over time, and it ends with a discussion on the importance of critical theory to challenge the quick fixes that are focused on by research that tends to focus entirely on the how and what without critical reflection. Now, I'm not going to summarize this section more. It's an interesting read if you're interested in getting nerdy about philosophy, so I highly recommend reading it if you want to learn more 
But for this particular episode, I'm going to try and narrow the focus to focus specifically on actionable things for CS educators, or things to at least think through and reflect on. So the next section of the paper is titled Methodology in Music Education. So one of the traits of critical theory that Rogelski mentions towards the end of the previous section is that it is critical of any, quote, philosophy or theory that cannot be put into practice, end quote, from page 108. In other words, it's not philosophy just for the th sake of thinking, but it's for the sake of actually doing something with it, which is reminiscent of the discussions that I had on Paulo Freire's book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. If you haven't listened to those four episodes, I highly recommend it. Okay, a second trait of critical theory is, quote, that true knowledge must take into account historical, social, subjective, contextual, personal, interpretive, collective, and situational factors, and no less so in educational and computer science matters than in any other human undertakings. Humans are not simply things. They formulate purposes and goals in terms of perceived needs that are always uniquely situated. Having such intentionality, they are thus agents who can't act rationally toward fulfilling those needs. Humans and their situations, namely teachers, students, and schools, are not interchangeable. They vary according to different needs, goals, and intentions, and unique restraints and local opportunities of the governing situations. For example, the many situated variables governing computer science teaching. End quote. From page 109. Now, also from page 109, Rogelski notes that research that ignores these aspects of humanity, quote, reduces students and teachers alike to abstractions that are unreal. Any knowledge gained from researching them as though they are things amounts at most to theoria that, as pure knowledge or impersonal technique, cannot apply directly to the important variables of human praxis and between people, end quote. So to engage in a critical theory of education, we as educators need to be critical of research that reduces people to abstractions while also being critical of the practical knowledge we use in the classroom that positions teaching as a craft where, quote, the teacher is more like an assembly line worker in a factory than a creative and critical professional, end quote, from page 109. One thing that Rogelski mentions is that teachers tend to not think beyond the scope they are teaching because there is little consequence for engaging in uncritical reflection and practices. There's a quote from page 110 that elaborates on this. Quote, teachers are typically in touch only with their own teaching circumstances, their own computer science subspecialty, their local teaching circumstances, their own computer science subspecialty in their school, and their personal and teaching paradigms. Thus, each does his or her own thing with little understanding or concern for differences among other teachers. From the perspective of critical education and curriculum theory, then, teachers tend to err as much in the direction of unwarranted subjectivity as positivists do in the direction of false objectivity, end quote. In other words, we need to find some kind of a balance between positivist research that tends to treat people and learning as abstractions, and the more practitioner side of things that is often shared, where there's little critical thinking of the why, when, where, etc., of a particular learning experience or approach. So Rogelski notes that from a curriculum standpoint, there is often an assumption in teaching that the tools are not the problem. It's the delivery of the tools that's the problem. So in other words, the tools are viewed as the curriculum themselves, and it is up to the teacher to effectively deliver the curriculum as designed and without critical reflection on the tools themselves. Because the curriculum is considered to be designed by people who are knowing and are being implemented by people who are unknowing. In other words, we as curriculum designers have a background in computer science, therefore we know more than you who is the computer science educator. 
Now that is extremely problematic, and you'll hear in some of the interviews that I've done and some of the upcoming interviews why this is problematic. In particular, check out the interview that's coming up with Joanna Good. Now that being said, one of the things that we need to consider is there are many different types of curricula to use in CS, and we as professionals need to be able to critically reflect on which curricula serve different visions or purposes in CS education. Again, thinking back to the CS Visions framework that I mentioned previously, and is linked in the show notes. Now, when engaging with curricula, we need to be aware of whether the intended and assessed outcomes are, quote, relevant only to the classroom rather than to the world outside of school, end quote, page 110. So to elaborate on that, Rogelski provides a carpentry analogy, quote, the situation can be compared to teaching the concept of sawing, hammering, chiseling, and routing as isolated activities or skills, leaving students totally unable and uninterested in ever building anything for use in the real world outside the classroom. End quote. It's from page 110. Now, in the professional development that we do with Boot Up PD, one of the things we like to talk about with project-based learning is how you could teach kids how to measure things, how to cut things, how to use a hammer and nails, etc. And you can make them all discrete isolated tasks, or you could engage in project-based learning and have kids build a treehouse or a birdhouse or something like that, which takes all those understandings and skills and applies it into a situation in which kids create something. So that kind of basically summarizes what Rogelski is saying. Like, look, we can't just do things for the sake of doing them. We need to situate them within real-world application. Now, in computer science education, we can question whether the curricula we use actually develops concepts, practices, and skills that are useful outside of the classroom space, or if they're only useful for meeting particular standards. Now, one of the interesting things that Rogelski also notes is that we need to critically reflect on conferences in the field. So, for example, reflecting on if sessions are focusing primarily on the what and how of teaching something without critically discussing the theories or philosophies behind such approaches. So far too often there are sessions that focus entirely on what you can do tomorrow in the classroom without engaging in a discussion on why you might or might not replicate a lesson with the kids that you work with. This focus on education often equates experiences with learning without critical reflection on where and when such learning experiences make the most sense for the different CS visions or purposes people might have with a given program or class. Here's a quote from page 111. Quote, the blind faith in and devotion to a technicist method is what I have chosen to refer as methodolatry, the unreasonable reverence and blind faith that amounts to idolatry, end quote. So in other words, when engaging in some kind of an approach, whether it's like project-based learning or constructionism or constructivism or attending a conference session or whatever, we need to engage in some kind of a critical reflection on when, why, how we might use these different approaches in different contexts. It's not enough to simply say, okay, I'm going to buy into grip mindset or growth mindset or project-based learning without understanding why those are useful and helpful and when they might not be useful or helpful. So moving away from what Rogelski refers to as methodology, where we blindly idolize some kind of a method or approach. All right, so the next section of this paper is titled Empowering Critical and Reflective Teaching Praxis. Rogelski suggests that we need to begin by critically reflecting on the field and ask what any particular field is good for. Again, this relates to the CS Visions framework, which guides people through a process of thinking through the purposes of CS education and using that as a lighthouse that guides decisions on implementing a program in your state, district, school, class, etc. So Rogelski suggests that as educators, we need to engage in an autobiographical approach with critical reflection. 
Now, here's a quote from page 112 that summarizes this. Quote, an autobiographical approach to ideology critique involves self-critical evaluation of the various forces, influences, institutions, and paradigms that have conditioned the teacher's own beliefs and assumptions and that continue to influence teaching. It amounts to asking, how did I acquire my guiding beliefs and convictions and why do I hold them so strongly? And what factors and influences in my own history have narrowed my thinking? Particularly important to ask, how much of what and how I teach have I uncritically accepted on the basis of how I've been taught? The mantra, teachers teach as they were taught, is a truism and is arguably the single most important variable for the lack of the kind of progress in teaching that has characterized other professions, end quote. So I started teaching percussion and drumline my senior year of high school. And one of the things that I had to learn early on is that the approaches that worked really well for me weren't gonna work for everybody else. And this is something that I've engaged in many discussions on with undergrad and even graduate students in music education programs in particular. In those discussions, one of the questions that I like to ask is, if the approaches that were used in your music classes worked so well, then why is it that you became a music educator and your peers did not? Why is it that you continue to make music and your peers do not? What percentage continues to engage in the subject area after the end of the class? So a question that I can ask for you, the listener, is to think through, why is it that you went into computer science education? What about that teaching approach worked really well for you, but why didn't that approach work really well for other students in the classes that you're in, if you were in computer science classes? Or speaking more broadly, why did you go into education? Now tying it into the philosophy and the actions, what philosophies resonate with you, but might not resonate with other people or might not work in other situations. But having worked with every grade K through 12, undergraduate and graduate students in a variety of contexts and classes and subject areas, I'll be the first to say that some approaches work really well with some students and classes and work not so well with others. And it depends on a lot of factors that we need to consider. So we can't just go into education or more specifically CS education and go, this worked really well for me when I was a student, therefore I'm going to repl replicate it in any other context that I work in as an educator. Now, another thing that is important to reflect on after engaging in an autobiographical reflection is to continue to reflect on whether our actions in the classroom actually align with our vision. So for example, when I first started working in K-8 coding classes, I was in awe of the amount of problem solving that kids were engaging with through the puzzle-based platform they were using. If I had continued down this approach, I would have been happy, kids would have been happy, administrators would have been happy, so why change it? However, while critically reflecting on what was working well in those classes and what was missing, I realized the platform we were using did not align with my focus on creativity and self-expression. So we ended up switching coding platforms and expanding to several different platforms. Now, by engaging in this reflective process, we were able to better align with the philosophies that inform my own approach to education while maintaining a high degree of problem solving through creating. And this new approach worked even better for myself, for the kids, and for administrators. So when making a switch like this, Regalsi suggests that educators need to develop what he refers to as communicative competence in order to not only critically think, but engage in communicative processes that can critically argue rationales and choices to other teachers, administrators, and community members. And to clarify, by the way, quote, arguing in this constructive sense is not a matter of bickering and debating, but a reasoning, offering evidence, and otherwise attempting to reach a mutually satisfying agreement or resolution, end quote, from page 113. 
Now, this is important practice to develop because not all teachers, administrators, community members are going to take a multi-perspectival approach to teaching. In other words, some of them might be hung up on, well, this other approach worked really well for me, so why aren't you doing that in your class? So we as educators need to be able to communicate the rationales behind why we're doing what we're doing. And I will say that power dynamics can come into play here. So when I just had my bachelor's degree, administrators listened to me significantly less than when I was one paper away from a doctorate. Even if I was saying the same thing, there's different weight that is involved in that kind of social capital that comes with advanced degrees, presenting, publishing, etc. So when engaging in these discussions with other stakeholders, in addition to thinking through the rationales behind what you're doing and trying to communicate, also consider the different power dynamics at play that can work in favor or against you. And by the way, this approach of the autobiographical approach applies not just to K-12 educators, but to teacher educators in higher education as well. It's something I did when I worked with undergraduate and graduate students, and it's something that I did when working with K-12 students. And now it's something that I do overseeing professional development and curriculum at boot up. Okay, so a quick summary of this particular section is basically the author is arguing that, hey, we need to critically reflect on our practices by thinking through what worked for you in the past and why, and how it may or may not work in the present. And we need to learn how to critically reflect, and we need to learn how to be able to share our reflections with various stakeholders. All right, so the next section of the paper is called Action-Based Music Curriculum. So in this section, Rogelski describes the importance of creating curricula that is based on action and critical reflection. In particular, the vision or goals that you set for a program should include actions that strive to reach those ideals, or at the very least, improve on those goals, along with ongoing and critical reflection on how to continue to improve in those areas. So to do this, Rogelski recommends that every teacher treat every lesson or class as an experiment that tests the effectiveness of a particular curriculum or learning experience. Although the results of such experience aren't generalizable, they can assist with planning for learning in the near future with the kids we work with by developing an individualized approach or style that works best for the kids we work with. Now, the way I did this in the classroom is I would videotape my lessons and I'd go back and watch them. And in each one of them, I would change something in a different way or focus on something, whether it be changing the expressiveness of my body motions or the expressiveness of my voice or explaining a concept in one way or whatever. And then going back and analyzing the recordings and critically reflecting on what I can do to continue to improve the learning experiences in the classrooms that I was working with. So you don't have to present on your findings. You don't have to publish your findings. You just need to experiment in your classes to try and continue to improve things. And if you listen to the interview with Dan Schneider, he talks about the importance of doing that. Like if you have five classes in a row that are all doing the same lesson, don't teach it five times the same way. Like try five different variations and see which ones work best and why in different scenarios and times of day. And if you want more awesome advice like that, check out the interview with Dan. I'll link to that in the show notes. Now, this section of the paper ends with a discussion on how the imposition of standards on teachers can assist with deprofessionalizing teachers and how we can address some of those concerns by engaging in action research. So if you want to learn more about that, check out the last couple of paragraphs of this section of the article, or you can learn more about some of the problems that I have with standards by listening to the Pedagogy of the Oppressed Unpacking Scholarship episodes I mentioned previously. All right, so the article concludes with a brief summary and some suggested next steps, but I'm not going to summarize them here. 
All right, so each one of these unpacking scholarship episodes, I like to share some lingering questions or thoughts that I've had or would recommend that you think through. So one of them is, what research, practice, or theories inform your own approach in CS education? So I've been sharing many of the theories and research in these unpacking scholarship episodes that have informed my own approach, at least a small sampling of them so far. But I'm curious about what theories, practices, and research has informed your own experiences, either explicitly or implicitly. In particular, what theories resonate with you and what theories do you disagree with? And why is that? What theories inform the theories that you resonate with or disagree with? This is something that I continue to do with each paper or scholarship or suggestion that I come across. And it's something that I highly recommend that you also engage in because it can really help with continuing to refine your own practices in formal and informal learning environments. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and thinking critically about the different theories and practices that you engage in implicitly or explicitly. And I hope you take the time to reflect on it as it can be really beneficial for the kids that we work with. As a friendly reminder, you can click on the link in the app you're listening to this on or going to jaredaleary.com to find the other podcasts that I mentioned in the show notes. If you'd be so kind, please consider sharing this with somebody who would benefit from hearing this particular discussion or take a moment to provide a review on whatever platform you're listening to this on as it helps more people find this content. I hope you stay tuned next week for another interview and two weeks from now for another Unpacking Scholarship episode. I hope you're all staying safe and are having a wonderful week. Thank you for listening.